I am Planta on the line in Vancouver, British Columbia at thecommentary.ca. Matt Turnauer joins me now. He is the author of the monograph to the new collection, Cali Artographer. It's a remarkable collection of photographs and art by an artist named Joan Archibald from Long Island, New York, who in the 1960s made her way to California and remade herself as Cali. She reinvented herself, took photography at the... Uh, College of the Desert in Palm Springs and became friendly with the showbiz crowd like uh, Richard Chamberlain in Malibu and Frank Sinatra in Palm Springs. She moved into a house there once owned by Bobby Darren and Sandra Dee. She began creating what she later trademarked, artography. She uh, would take photographs, develop them, and then finish uh, them with uh, dyes, spray paint, even dirt and bugs. She would move from prints to Polaroids and manipulate them to striking effects. She published a few pieces, was written up in a trade magazine. Then by the 1970s, her work was locked away in suitcases, uh, stored away, never to be seen for over 40 years. She didn't stop creating art, though, and as we find out when uh, Joan Archibald died, her daughter Susan discovered all this art, which is the subject of an exhibit currently at the Columbus Museum of Art and uh, beautiful new books from Powerhouse Books. There is a limited uh, four-volume set of the work, which uh, was published last year, and now a trade edition out shortly. It is edited by Len Prince, the noted American photographer who was uh, once married to Susan Archibald. I'll ask Mr. Turnauer about his reaction when showed the photos by his friend Len Prince and uh, about um, this remarkable story of Callie, her art and the mystery of it all. She and her work uh, has been described as a sort of West Coast version of Vivian Meyer. Matt Turnauer is a director, writer, and journalist whose documentaries include Valentino, The Last Emperor, Citizen Jane, Battle for the City, Scotty and the Secret History of Hollywood, Studio 54, Where's My Roy Cohen, and the four-part miniseries, The Reagans. As uh, editor-at-large and special correspondent for Vanity Fair, he contributed many feature articles, including Once Upon a Time in Beverly Hills, which told the story of Janet de Cordova, the widow of Johnny Carson's former producer, Fred de Cordova. It's a fascinating piece that has captivated readers, one I really liked when I first read it more than 10 years ago, one I had to ask Matt about. I'm a fan of his work, and I appreciated uh, that he indulged me in questions about his films and writing as well. Visit powerhousebooks.com for more. I spoke to Matt from Los Angeles late last week. Please uh, welcome to the Plant Online program, Matt Turnauer. Mr. Turnauer, good morning. Good morning. Thanks for joining us. Um, can you describe, Matt, what it was like when your friend Len Prince told you about all these unseen photographs? I mean, what went through your mind when you, when you heard of this, this collection of things that had been unseen heretofore? Well, to be honest, uh, my first reaction was uh, slight disinterest. <laughs> I thought, well, you know, there's a photo archive, and it came in a Dropbox, and Dropbox never opens for me, and, you know, the files were not coming out, and I was thinking, oh, I'll look at this later. Eventually, I opened this massive file. Uh, I heard very little about it from when It just was like an unseen photo archive, and image after image comes pouring out of this uh series of files and I you know after a few of these I thought well this is really good looking interesting and then the volume of it and the consistency of the work uh, there's several genres of, of Callie's work uh, through different periods and uh, it all came 
kind of tumbling out. It had been very well organized, and some of it had been laid out in the form of the book that uh, has since been published by Sam Shahidi, the incredible art director. And I got it immediately after that. I thought this was a significant body of work that no one's seen before by a mysterious photographer, a woman who lived in uh, Palm Springs, California, in the Pacific Palisades, which is an affluent beach community in Los Angeles. I'm from basically uh, right there near Pacific Palisades. And yeah. I saw her aesthetic. I understood it. it slightly. Her early work predates me a little bit, but I was kind of like grew up in the L.A. of, of the next period, and it really spoke to me. Yeah, you, you say something in your introduction that I found quite profound, um, that it represents a time and a place before the 1980s when, when everything changed. And, and you know, I, I, I've been watching that show um, Family lately, the, the Seder Thompson show with Christy McNichol, and um, that's in Pasadena, of, of course. But it's, it's a California in the 1970s. It's a lot different than, say, the California that we see in sort of like Albert Brooks movies where um, – it's more of a big city than a small town, if you will. Is that is that something that you, you that drew you to the work essentially? When, when after say, you opened all the files and saw the photos. Yes, uh, the form of the work is of course striking. The early work is sort of uh, kaleidoscopic tie dye. Uh, <laughs> I have to uh -huh. see it. it. It's not unrelated to kind of the psychedelic album covers of the seventies late 60s even and the rock posters of that time it has that kind of feeling to it but the los angeles that it captures uh was striking to me uh there's i think simplicity yes uh things of course were more simple in the 70s the 80s got a little more complicated and um cities became more affluent as the 80s went on mm. as well which uh changed them Los Angeles had a lot of redevelopment in the 80s, and um, I find that actually quite interesting. That was the L.A. of my youth. Mm -hmm. um, but I remembered the 70s. But the, the other thing about L.A. in the 70s is that it's really the Manson decade. Mm -hmm. So you had this sort of collision of um, the myths of Hollywood and the myths of Malibu and surf and sand and the good life and uh, uh, a lot of marketing was built around all of that, obviously Hollywood, but if you look at the cars and the, even the liqueurs of the period, there was like a liqueur called Malibu, and there was a car, the Chevy Malibu, and um, all of our brains are bombarded with this um, narratives, uh, some of them film and art-based, and some of them crass advertising-based, but just basically, and also then the Manson narratives, all those things braid in our minds, and that's the L.A. Uh, I had kind of vague memories or kind of nascent impressions of as I was kind of growing up in the 80s. Uh, it was a little scary, too. Uh, New York was scary in the 70s, yeah. by the way. I mean, it, well, cities could be, uh, but L.A. had a kind of Manson scariness to it, a hippie, hippie, hippie life gone wrong kind of Callie's work is uh, in part I think uh, about that or at least uh, captures that feeling so uh, for, for people listening uh, uh, Len Prince um, was married to, to Callie's daughter at one point how, how much of, of um, his former mother-in-law's art did he know about 
Uh, not a lot. I think that uh, at the time he knew Callie, whose name is Joan Archibald, mm-hmm. uh, she died only a few years ago. Her uh, kind of pen name was Callie. She was an affluent um, wife of a lawyer who was his mother-in-law living in Palm Springs and Pacific Palisades, and I don't think she was overt with her photography at all. And Len is a a very good, accomplished Mm -hmm. photographer, so uh, he didn't think of her as that. And then when she died, um, her daughter, Susan Archibald, found a series of, I believe they were white American tourister hard shell suitcases, and the archive had been stashed in those and were kept in her kind of shut-ins home. Mm-hmm. Uh, interesting, the later period of her work, and I, Sam Shaheed and Len Prince curated the, um, the collector's edition of the book. There's now a trade edition, a uh, second kind of uh, printing in a trade of edition that's more modest. But the first edition is in four volumes. One is my monograph about Cowley, but the third volume of those three is called Outer Space, which I think is brilliant because in her shut-in period after she was widow, a widow, um, she became obsessed with photographing uh, aliens and UFO uh, sightings, which she shot through a closed circuit uh, TV system. Really interesting work. Um, there are journals that go with it. Mm-hmm. Uh, it seems like someone's descent into uh, some form of um, disturbance or mental illness. It's, I can't diagnose it from a distance, but it's a different person than the uh, the early period Cali. But it's really interesting work and very very haunting. Yeah, there's a there's a a piece from the middle years, if you will, um, of Sinatra shot. Uh, through a uh, closed circuit screen, um, and it, 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 it's unmistakably Sinatra. I mean, it, it, you know, I hate to describe it because it, it, uh, I, I would do, do it justice, but I mean, you could tell that's Frank Sinatra, and she, she did sort of that same sort of work, photographing from screens later on, right? Yes, that's something very interesting that you've picked up on. So this captures sort of midlife Callie. She's living in Palm Springs. She had Sandra Dee and Bobby Darren's former house where much of her work was done, and she was an unconventional artist who processed uh, her photos sometimes in the swimming pool where she would color it and she would dye the water of the pool, etc. You have to kind of see it to mm. um, get the final effect. And then she also used the bathtub in Sandra Dee's bathroom. So this is a sort of great L.A., um, trope of uh, a pop artist who's you know living in the celebrity home, which is a thing in Los Angeles where everyone's home used to belong to a famous person, whether it's true or not. But in this <laughs> yeah. case, it was. Yeah. And she's you know Sandra Dee and Bobby Darin are so iconic of the fifties and sixties. So she's um, creating this work at this time, and she's also kind of a woman about Palm Springs, which was about to. I think, descend from its peak in the 60s. And Sinatra was the unofficial mayor of Palm Springs. And he performed at um, a nightclub there called Jilly's, which was a, a outpost of a New York club owned by Sinatra's uh, right-hand man, 
uh, whose name was Chili. Mm-hmm. And uh, apparently he was interested romantically in Callie, and she was in the green room watching him perform and snapped a picture of him on the closed-circuit TV monitor. And you're right, it, it's, it's very um, much a distorted photo of uh, television screen lines, mm-hmm. but those things are recognizable as not just a very interesting snapshot. And it indeed is related to the later work of her shooting these closed-circuit screens. Uh, She had been very interested in UFOs. Uh, In the desert, there's very little uh, light pollution at night, so she had a lot of, uh, she said, experiences with them, according to her daughter, all along through the decades. And then when she became more of a shut-in, uh, she really thought she was being visited quite a bit, and she journaled about it. In the uh, box set edition of the book, Sam has really brilliantly uh, overlaid with vellum these journals onto the uh, photographs of the TV screen, and Callie then draws the images that she says are uh, alien spacecraft or orbs or whatever they may be, so you can see what she's drawn uh, transposed over the photographs that she took. It's a very powerful, very elegant um, design that allows you to uh, appreciate what she was doing, even if you think it, that it's the work of a mad person. I, I, it might not be. I, I don't really. I didn't know her, so yeah, yeah. it does seem to be someone that's very alone and um, looking at closed circuit TV monitors a lot, which is generally. Um, I don't know. It's a sign of some sort of antisocial behavior. Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, it, it, it's so so fascinating to see this 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 career, as it were. Um, you can't say that she was say, a, a dilettante or a dabbler, as someone puts it in the book, um, because she had some fo- uh, uh, photography training. Is that right? Yes. So she went to College of the Desert in Palm Springs and got trained. Uh, took these classes. She had equipment. She had some money, um, especially after she married and uh, her her husband was a prosperous attorney. So she had a lot of equipment. She did Polaroids, and there's a whole volume in the uh, box set of just her Polaroids, which are generally portraits Mm -hmm. and are very interesting. Um, They're beautifully laid out in this volume. Um, very much of the 60s and 70s, I'd say, mm-hmm. the Polaroid period. And she did a lot of hand coloring on them, too, so that's that's quite interesting. She then um, had one exhibit in Central California. She had a little article written about her in a trade magazine, and then she kind of went underground after that. And that's the interesting part in many ways, is that she had a secret career, She was very consistent. She produced an enormous amount of work, but eventually it became, I suppose, for herself. And it's very interesting, I think, to find an entire, almost intact body of work of an artist who was consistent, had many periods over decades, had a coherent style that changed, like Picasso's periods, you know, the blue, the pink, etc. She has those types of periods. And to see it curated... Uh, and considered after it had been done covertly all those decades is a pretty rare thing. So that's a feature of this uh, artist's 
uh, newly discovered work. Yeah, and I understand that Ansel Adams even saw some of the work. Is that right? According to uh, her daughter, Adams uh, went to the gallery, which was near where he lived. I believe it was in Morro Bay, and um, liked the work. Mm. Yeah. Um, you're a great writer, Matt. You're, you're a marvelous filmmaker. Um, if, if you had to think about this period after the, the, the Camera 35 article and, and going underground, as you, as you put it a moment ago, um, is, is there a way to explain what happened and, 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 and why she did what she did? No, and I think that's what interested me in some ways as a, a writer and filmmaker was uh, there's a secret here. Uh, it's just somewhat mysterious why she decided to become a secret photographer. And uh, it doesn't happen to this magnitude a lot. Um, she's not a snapshot photographer. She's not an, really an amateur photographer. She's mm -hmm. a working photographer and a working visual artist who, for whatever reason, even though she took the trouble to brand herself yeah. with a, this name, Callie, K-A-L-I, um, and trademark, I believe that name, and also artography yeah. of made-up word, which does describe her work quite well. It's sort of a painterly photography, mm -hmm. if you will. Yeah. Um, so she trademarks that. She has a logo made, or her, her stamp for the back of the photos is very considered and designed. Everything's considered. Everything's thought through. Um, it's all there. And yet, after that one little show very early, that one tiny article, she just disappears from the public eye. And I mean, it, can one glean from, say, family relations or Mother Betty or her, her daughter Susan um, what might have happened in terms of the career, say? Susan, the daughter who's still alive, um, doesn't really know. I mean, she she wasn't really clear herself. Um, and I think that there was some estrangement. Uh, so I think that, you know, I mean, we find out things about our parents sometimes that we didn't know or we weren't interested in. Um, it was their thing. I think that might have been part of this, that everyone was doing their own thing at the time. And, um, I mean, I don't, I perhaps, I mean, clearly uh, people didn't take her work as seriously as she did or might have wanted, which might have driven her, might have driven her underground or into covert status. I, but it didn't stop her from doing it. And even when she stopped doing the colorized or the painterly work or the Polaroid, she kept doing something mm. that's coherent. Uh, so there's that mystery. Uh, a bit of the, the bit of the narrative of Callie is a mystery story that I'm not sure will ever be solved. And and it, it lends itself so well to a film. Have you considered, uh, say, a film project on, on Callie or the work itself? Yeah, I mean, there's been some talk of it. Um, we're thinking about it. It's um, it's very visual, obviously. She's very mysterious. Um, it's it's been it's 
definitely been contemplated, but um, not doing it yet. Yeah. The, the, the work um, itself is being exhibited, I understand, in, in Columbus at the Columbus Museum of Art. That's on until March if people want to go there. What's the reception been like for the work itself? It's been wonderful. Uh, there was a, also a gallery show in New York at Staley Wise. The books have sold really well, and this trade edition is very beautiful, too which I don't think is even out yet. I think this is well-timed for that. It should be coming out quite soon. Uh, it's been written about. The New Yorker wrote about it. Vogue wrote about it. Vanity Fair. Um, and uh, Los Angeles Magazine did a wonderful piece. Uh, it's been um, very well received in the press and the public. Uh, I understand um, you have a, a film out now, The End of the World. I haven't even seen a trailer of it. Can you tell us about that? Yes, it's my latest documentary feature. It's called The End of the World, a very dramatic title. Uh, it's about uh, Bennington College in the 80s. Um, you'll have to see the film to understand the title, but that was a time of incredible um, cultural and uh, literary um, worlds colliding. There were authors there, uh, Brett Easton Ellis, Donna Tarr, Jonathan Lethem, to name three, who had big breakout careers in the 80s and 90s and are still uh, at the top of their games. Uh, they were all friends and there and quickly became colle colleagues because their writing was published uh, in the case of, certainly in the case of Brett Easton Ellis and Donna Tarr, they were published at a very young age. Uh, it was a certain cultural moment. It's an ode to Gen X, mm. my generation. Uh, there are very few Gen X odes of late, so this is uh, this is a Gen X movie for anyone who's interested in that. I, I can't wait to watch it because, I'm, as I told you just before we started, I'm a big fan of your work. Um, your films are, 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 are have all been quite popular, and they are of people who are uh, complex most of them likable, um, but, but they're all certainly fascinating. What draws you to your subjects? I mean, whether it's Valentino or Scotty Bowers or Roy Cohn, um, Jane Jacobs, um, what what draws you to, to say make a, spend the time to make a movie about these people? Yeah, it's a question that I myself struggle to answer. Uh, I mean, likability doesn't really apply to Roy Cohn uh, in general, <laughs> yeah. by the way. I mean, yeah. I, actually, he had a lot of friends. Um, yeah. And um, I, of all the subjects I've made, I think most people would quibble about him being likable. The Although I did find some charm there, oddly. I couldn't quite believe it myself. He was, of <laughs> course, the, uh, the diabolical... Uh, manipulator of um, politics and power and a mafia attorney and the mentor of Donald Trump. He yeah. really, in my my film's premise, is that he created the presidency of Trump from beyond the grave. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I, I, I don't know. I feel like I know a story when I see it. I sort of feel it. And then I get very interested and some, it just becomes somehow inexorable. Um, the first film I did, Valentino, The Last Emperor, about the uh, designer Valentino, really started the wave of fashion documentaries that mm, has right. not really stopped since. Uh, now, that was um, when I was 
uh, editor-at-large of Vanity Fair and writing long-form journalism and very interested in making film, too, and I was looking for a subject. I was looking for a world, basically, and a story that was not obvious and more complex than just something that was simply a portrait or something biographical. And I found it in Valentino and his life and business partner, Giancarlo Giamatti, who invented this fashion empire and really helped reinvent fashion. But really their greatest accomplishment is their own relationship, which Mm. was sort of a marriage. And the movie is really the story of the marriage. Uh, It's about fashion nominally, but what I wanted to make was a story of a marriage between two men in Italy, which started in the early 1960s and persists to this day. There's still, um, you know, uh, for all intents and purposes, they're still together. Um, If not romantically, they're very, very much a pair, and uh, it's an amazing look inside a, a world that most people don't get to see. So I'll, that's kind of a two-hander. You know, there are two characters there. I've made a few films like that. Uh, Scotty and the Secret History of Hollywood, which is about, uh, for lack of a better term, the pimp to the stars mm-hmm. in in the old days of mid-century Hollywood. And uh, he ran his brothel out of a gas station, and he was still around. He just he died only a few years ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's it's a cinema verite film, and he uh, has a kind of um, uh, partner, uh, his wife, Lois Bowers, uh, and that's a two-hander in a way. It's a bit of a story of a marriage, although it's also a uh, a portrait of sex same sexuality and the culture of Hollywood and its myths. And it's, it's a, it's a story about the city that I grew up in, Los Angeles and Hollywood and um, all of the kind of myths that surround it and the power of the film industry and um, the way it rules all of our lives, whether we know it or not. And then a movie I made, a few years after that, which is actually a four-part series called The Reagans, uh, is not unrelated to Scotty Bowers. I think the Reagans themselves, were they alive, would have been horrified to hear that, and I hope (laughs) I'd be be thrilled if they were. Uh, But they are myths. They are kind of like uh, self-mythologizers who, uh, and one of the core tenets of that film was that Reagan comes from a place deep in the American psyche that was partially created by Hollywood, and we elected a movie star and uh, kind of like a, not exactly an A-list movie star, sort of like an A-minus, B-plus movie star even, Mm -hmm. uh, as our president in uh, 1980, and what was that about, and how did that happen, and why was that okay, or was it okay, Uh, and uh, I think it's not unrelated to the American myth machine that is explored in, in the Scotty Bowers film. Well, you know, if we're making connections between my films, one of the most haunting ones that I discovered, I wasn't conscious of it really, was that Ronald Reagan and Scotty Bowers, who were not too far apart in age, right. uh, were born and raised about, I'd say, 50 miles apart in uh, northwestern Illinois. Wow. They're really from the same part of the United States. And if you actually listen to them speaking without visuals, they sound very much alike. They speak the same. 
regional dialect yeah, of yeah. Uh, rural Illinois, northern Illinois, and um, they're very similar. Uh, I was just astonished. So even I, so I kind of was surprised myself in comparing the the themes of Americanism uh, that were uh, at the core of those two seemingly disparate characters. And was it deliberate early on not, not to have, a, say, a narrator in any of your films? I love that question. Thank you. Yes. <laughs> I'm determined never to have a narrator. Uh, I think it's a different... It's a different thing to have a narrated film uh, in a feature and a documentary. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's some wonderful narrated documentaries that I, I love. Sure. Um, I mean, the, the Ken Burns film on the Roosevelt is yeah. narrated yeah. by Peter Coyote, Coyote in, uh, hypnotically so. Uh, and it's such a, I love that series. I think it's just extraordinary and I, it's very appropriate to have that as a narrated story. My films don't have voiceover narration, so this, if it's a cinema verite film, the whole form is built on um, basically the edit of the film um, is scene built upon scene, and you don't need any voice to come over and um, Voice of God style mm-hmm. narration, and that's that's the trick of those, and I think it's just an extraordinary form, and I, it's my favorite. Uh, but the archival films don't have narrators either, and it's a sort of archival verite sometimes where we build, we find enough footage that is raw and has different angles to it or is shot in a way that we can cut it into cinema verite sequences and then build the film, even though it's something that I didn't shoot myself as a cinema verite style in archival. And I don't think the viewer knows really what's happening. You have to really be kind of a film nerd to understand the building blocks of that. But it's a really interesting form, and I think there's something wonderful about not having the imposition of the voice of God narration where someone, I, the filmmaker, or someone else, voice is telling you what's happening or what to think or directing you in that way uh, it's, a, it's a in a way it's a more challenging form uh, it's more related to uh, scripted film mm-hmm. uh, in a certain way uh, it's really interesting I've, it's a very very powerful way of storytelling uh, I can edit from long form journalism and I think it's not unrelated to that by the way if you look at some of the longer articles I've written for Vanity Fair, which used to run very long articles, yeah, um, yeah. you know, like 10,000, sometimes longer articles, 10,000 word articles. Uh, there's, I built them frequently as cinema verite uh, articles in print where uh, there's scenes that build on each other and tell you the story and the characters speak in their own voices as much as possible. I've seen you interviewed over the years, and you're a very well-dressed sort of person. Um, you mentioned the Valentino film. I only saw that last week. Um, and I kept wondering, as I was watching it, what you were wearing. And, and were you conscious about how you looked in front of, say, Valentino and, and being in this world, as it were? Yeah, interesting question, yes. In fact, uh, 
at that time, I was living in New York, and I was working at Vanity Fair, so, you know, offices in Midtown Manhattan, um, full casual workplace. Clothing hadn't really happened at that point. Condé Nast is the company that owns Vanity Fair. That were Vogue, you know, Vogue mm-hmm. was there. So it was a dressier um, context, and you had to have, you felt you had to have the clothes. So I had them, and I liked clothes. And I don't know, I felt like one of the nice things about New York City is that you could dress a little bit and not feel completely out of context. Mm-hmm. Now that's, of course, everything's changed, especially in the last three years. So, And I now live in Los Angeles where you should see me in my um, T-shirt and my um, sweatpants and my uh, Ugg clogs or whatever they are, mules, <laughs> my house slippers that I'm wearing right now. Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah, when, when I was around Valentino, he actually paid attention and was harshly critical of people who he didn't think were dressed appropriately. So, I, yeah, I dressed up. I didn't overdress. Yeah, yeah. And I didn't wear Valentino. I mean, there's a thing, actually, if you don't know about fashion, especially with women, when you go uh, and you're around a, a major designer, especially with women, uh, you're supposed to wear, etiquette dictates that you wear their fashion. Hmm. That's a really old way of doing it, but it is done or was done. And uh, I didn't do that, and I didn't do that because of uh, uh, journalistic reasons. I thought that I didn't want to be um, kind of like, Dressed for the house, sure. Uh, and I wore my own uh, my own clothes. But he, funny, uh, Valentino had a, a withering eye, so I used to wear a blue shirt, uh, frequently like a little gingham checked shirt, uh-huh. and a blue suit or a blue jacket and jeans or something. I wore a, almost the same thing every day. And he used to come up to me and say, if you wear another blue shirt tomorrow, I'm going to scream. <laughs> I mean, he would notice that. And uh, he would just do it to kind of yank my chain. It was, uh, I think if he really had disapproved, I wouldn't have been around him all the time. I think he would have either told me to wear something else or not even have dealt with me. That's how particular <laughs> he was. It reminds me of a story, you've probably heard this, of, of Mike Nichols. Um, the 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 day before the night before he he starts shooting Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, he's at a party and and he um, this is his first movie of course, and he asked Billy Wilder of all people, what should I wear tomorrow, knowing that it's Elizabeth Taylor and Richard Burton or it's a a movie right, and and that's the thing that I kept thinking about as I was watching your, your uh, film uh, on Valentino was how did he look. <laughs> Uh, that's funny. I didn't know that Mike Nichols story. That's interesting. It's, uh, I mean, you know, people do dress up uh, to direct, uh, but not in that way. I mean, when you look at the um, PR photos of people directing films uh, behind the scenes, they're inevitably wearing a baseball cap and a kind of puffer jacket and are unshaven. That seems to be the uniform of uh, directing, but that wasn't my look for this. I had a different look. The the uh, the first thing of yours that I I remember reading um, and and read over and over again, and I still read from time to time is a piece on Janet de Cordova. Um, it, it's it's just a fascinating um, piece. There's so many questions I have about it, but I'll just ask you one one thing about that. 
There, there was talk after that came out that that would be a project later on. I don't know if it was a television show or a film. Where are you in terms of, of adapting that, say? Yeah, so this is a story about the widow of Freddie DeCordova, who was the producer of Johnny Carson's Tonight Show. And they mm-hmm. were a uh, major couple in yeah. Hollywood in the highest circles of the town. And speaking of Billy Wilder, that Billy Wilder and his wife Audrey were their best friends. And this was very, very, very uh, uh, peak old Hollywood prestige. And uh, it's the story of her strange demise, really, where mm-hmm. when Freddie died, they were penniless, and Janet um, had to reduce her household circumstances and then eventually ended up moving to Mexico with her housekeeper, Gracie. Uh, it's a very interesting story of Hollywood and Hollywood endings that uh, are not typical. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's sort of a love, a, sort of a love story. A, a certain way. Um, that has been uh, fully scripted and it could be made. Uh, it's been in a couple places. It was at HBO and then it was at Amazon and uh, as most scripts never get made, but this is a particularly good one written by John Hoffman of uh, Only Murders in the Building fame mm. now. He's created that show. Uh, I think one day, I hope to direct that film. Uh, I hate to ask this, but but um, do, do you have a, an actor or actresses in mind, say, for, for the two parts? Well, you know, when we first made it into a scripted uh, project, uh, the uh, names that everyone was proposing probably have aged out a little by that mm. by this time. That was. The pandemic has warped time. I can't even remember how many years ago it was, but it was certainly more than six years ago. And, um, no, there were, I, I loathe the name names because there yeah, were actually yeah. people attached, sure. but they weren't publicly attached and they were very good actors. And I would have been thrilled. Uh, they came, uh, they came to the project because they had read my Vanity Fair story on Janet DeCordova and were really uh, captivated by the character as something for them to play. It's a wonderful role for a mid-career actress, two mm. mid-career actresses, yeah, because there's yeah. uh, Gracie and Janet, uh, and it's a, it's a really good part for um, an actress of that age, sort of 40s. And there are so many great actresses in their 40s and 50s right now who... Sometimes it's harder to find work when you are, you know, reach a stage where you're no longer the, you know, the typical age of leading woman. Yeah. It's such a marvelous piece that, that um, it's a long piece, and, and it's one that, that um, uh, I didn't want it to end. And I'm wondering how much more was cut from it. Yeah, well, um, at the time, a Vanity Fair story would have been, you know, 6,000 words to 10, and some people got much more. Uh, this was not a major investigative piece. So, you know, it was a 6,500, 7,000 word piece, which in today's journalism is wow. absolutely epic. Now, um, yeah, those pieces always came in long. So I'm sure there were thousand, a thousand or a couple thousand words cut. Uh, the editor at the time of my pieces, Wayne Lawson, was so surgical.
technically precise. I sometimes you couldn't even tell what was missing. I mean, he was so good at it. But yeah, there, there's other stuff. But like with a film, I mean, it's even more profound with a film, uh, especially a documentary, yeah, because uh, you shoot and the scene has to work. And because it's not scripted, uh, and if it's cinema verite, I mean, that's the ultimate um, uh, waste. Wasted film makes the film, really, because you have to build the scene out of things that don't follow the script and you don't know what you're getting. So it's a, more like journalism in a certain way because your tape recorder is running and you get three, four hours of stuff and you have to shape it. Yeah. The, the, the uh, Scotty Bowers film, that came out in 2017. Um, the, the, his book, though, that came out a few years before. Is that right? That's right. There's an interview um, that I, after I watched the movie, I went online to see other things that that, that uh, Bowers had done, and there, there's an interview with Skip E. Lowe, and mm-hmm. um, <laughs> uh, for for people listening to this, he was this uh, I guess local cable personality in in California who'd interviewed uh, people over the years, uh, mainly in show business, I guess. And uh, Bowers was a guest, and in the interview, he mentions you a couple of times. I guess you were in the room, right? Um, I, I never went to journalism school, so everything I've learned about asking questions has come from things that I've watched or listened to, including people like Skippy Lowe. Um, what was that like? Because I, I, I could tell from, from watching Bowers, um, Lowe was not a terribly good interviewer. Um, I, I think he would have been a better interviewer had he been better prepared. And it was kind of clear that he, he wasn't prepared. And, um, Bowers is sort of playing with him, isn't he? You know, I haven't watched that uh, since it happened. I was standing in the room. So Skippy Lowe uh, was a figment from my childhood. He had a public access yeah. show, which my <laughs> friends and I thought was hilarious. And <laughs> I think that who's the Martin Short character? Oh, Jiminy Glick. Jiminy Glick. Jiminy Glick. Yeah, he says. Uh, I don't he, know whether this is he said, documented. He, yeah, he says that it, it was partly based on Lowe and Merv. Yeah. Uh, so Merv Griffin, who's another yeah. subject of mine, by the way, I wrote a long profile of Merv Griffin. Yeah. One of my favorite experiences, actually. Who was very bright, actually. Yeah. Uh, not he was nobody's fool, Merv Griffin. And Skippy Lowe uh, had a kind of foolish persona that I don't think was um, intentional. He was a kind of uh, real character, though, um, and very much on the scene in West Hollywood and around L.A., and somehow landed kind of like C, D, and F-list people to be on this long-running show that was a cult, became a cult classic. So um, I knew Skippy Lowe when I was in high school because he used to have a talent showcase that my friends and I went to as a, a joke. Uh-huh. And it was the worst singers in the world would get up, and he would absolutely, uh, with great seriousness, be this sort of MC and impresario of this night, which was at a, a nightclub in Beverly Hills. I uh, can't remember which one it was at this point. So I actually knew Skippy Lowe, and then I was shocked to find that Scotty Bowers had a long history with him, and that um, Skippy Lowe had really infiltrated the kind of lower tiers of Hollywood and 
Gotti cut across all tiers of Hollywood. So he was uh, the lowest of the low because he was a sex worker. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, so he knew the street hustlers and all those people. And his clients were the highest of the high cast people. So he knew them all, and Skippy Lowe was one of them. And he went on the show, and uh, I don't. I think Skippy Lowe was jealous of Scotty's book. Mm. This was the problem, uh, because Skip thought he had a memoir that was of equal importance and caliber to Scotty's, and Scotty's book, which was called Full Service, was a runaway bestseller, actually. Yeah. And uh, he had a real story to tell that was much more significant than Skippy Lowe's story, and there was a rivalry, and that rivalry, I think, sort of spills onto the screen of this inept public access uh, broadcast that you watched. Uh, I think he was asking, I mean, Skip Skip was always an incoherent interviewer anyway. <laughs> so I think that his, his jealousy and anger at his subject probably um, scrambled him even more. Uh, yeah. He, he asked Bowers at one point, uh, what's the next project? And, and he says he wants to, to write a book about Matt Turnauer. And um, and and what I found interesting is you're in the room and and, and uh, Lowe doesn't know who Matt Turnauer is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's funny because I really knew him. Yeah. Uh, that's so brilliant. I actually kind of missed that. Uh, I knew Skip for years, not on a first name or uh-huh. even obviously second name basis. At least on my part. I mean, he was he was a, he was a public figure. And um, he certainly knew who I was if he didn't know my name, but he was so confused, which is very Jiminy Glick. Yeah, exactly. So you you really couldn't believe it was happening. I mean, it was so out of body. And Martin Short, I mean, that character is just absolutely amazing. It is, it is. I could uh, talk all um, day with you because I'm such a big fan of your work. I, I will look forward to seeing the end of the world. Um, but I so appreciate your time today. This has been such a pleasure for me, and, and uh, I appreciate it. Thank you. My pleasure. Nice talking with you. The book is called Cali Artographer. It's uh, published by Powerhouse Books. It's uh, edited by Len Prince, and uh, the monograph is written by Matt Turnauer, who uh, joined me on the line from Los Angeles in Vancouver. I'm Joseph Planta.